biblical passages and over a three-year cycle, they help us tell the story of God and of the humans who recorded the accounts seeking to understand God. So this final Sunday in the church calendar, this New Year's Eve of sorts, is called Christ the King Sunday. And so this morning, there are four scripture passages that speak to the kingship of Christ. We just read the Colossians passage, and I chose that one of the four to highlight this morning. But before we return to today's scripture, I have a confession to make. I have some challenges with the title, Christ the King Sunday. Sometimes it's known as Reign of Christ Sunday. And of course, we find this language of king and reign of king all throughout scripture and hymns and worship songs. But you know, throughout human history, kingship doesn't have a great track record. Being a king is associated with power over others. And while there have been compassionate and fair kings throughout the centuries, most kings are swift and quick on judgment and have no patience for those who aren't loyal. And that's just not the God that I've come to know. And so I think it can be confusing to bring this human title to Jesus. We try to name God or put to words what is difficult for our human mind to comprehend, and most often those names are limiting. And so today, I hope to try and recognize this Christ the King Sunday tradition in the universal church, and also invite us to consider scripture that will breathe new understanding and relevance to the kingship of Christ. If we're to understand Christ as king, let's first get some context as to the kind of kingdom Jesus is speaking of. In the New Testament, Jesus talks about the kingdom of God 162 times. It's pretty much his favorite thing to talk about. And he gives examples of what the kingdom is like through parables and teaching. And we can quickly confirm by browsing through the Gospels that Jesus describes that God's kingdom is forgiveness, restoration, generosity, hospitality, and love. And Jesus is not passive. He chooses to love at all costs. Jesus tells his followers that God's kingdom is here and not yet here. It's at hand and it's within us and all around us. And I love that. Those reminders through Jesus' words that God's kingdom is something all around us that we're part of and we awaken into. And there's another thing I was thinking about to better understand the title, Christ the King. There's no shortage of jokes that infer Christ is Jesus' last name, but Christ was not originally a name, but a title that came from the Greek word Christos which translates the Hebrew term Messiah, meaning the anointed one. And throughout the New Testament, this title indicates that Jesus' followers believed him to be the anointed son of King David, whom many Jews expected to restore the prominence of Israel. But I think many times I've used the words Jesus and Christ interchangeably. And not that this is in any way terrible, but scripture and tradition tell us that there's this beautiful difference and that really allows us to experience God even more fully. And so as I was reading and preparing this past week, I was reminded of Father Richard Rohr's book on the universal Christ, 
to see how I might stretch my understanding of the title Christ. In his writings, Rohr holds that the spirit of Christ is not the same as the person of Jesus. He argues that Christ has existed since the beginning of time and has been present in all cultures and all civilizations. Father Rohr holds that if the universe has existed for 13 billion years, it couldn't be that God's loving, saving relationship with creation began only 2,000 years ago when Jesus was born and walked among us. And then that saving news only became widely knowable to humanity around 600 years ago when the printing press was invented and Bibles began being mass produced. Jesus is the incarnation and embodiment of God, of that spirit, and following him and living like him and forgiving like him and walking alongside those on the margins like him is our way of accessing God's saving love and healing and peace. This is the Christ who always was, who became incarnate in time, and who is still being revealed. And I hear this message echoed in the Gospel of John, that of Christ in this larger universe-spanning role, with the opening poetry, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness cannot overcome it. It will be just over four weeks from now that we'll read that scripture as we welcome again the story of the nativity and the birth of Jesus. So I dug a little deeper, and I learned that Father Rohr came to this thinking about universal Christ, and he calls it cosmic Christ, through early Franciscan teachings. In the, third, in the 13th century, St. Francis rebelled against the Catholic Church. It become, the Catholic Church had become fixated on its own power and hierarchy. And so he renounced worldly goods, lived in a cave, and found God in nature. This was revealed to him in figures such as Brother Sun, Sister Moon, Brother Fire, and Sister Water. And then I learned that our reading in Colossians today is one of the scriptural foundations St. Francis referred to. Verse 15 of the Colossians passage read, The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. In this letter, we see Paul reassure the Colossian church that they can be confident in the fact that Christ has already secured the victory over all the powers of evil and the powerful claims that Christ is the creator as well as the firstborn of all creation. And there is the sweet assurance that nothing is outside of Christ. There's no situation that the Colossians might face that Christ is not already there. Paul assures this congregation and today, we can be assured that Christ is in all. All has been forgiven, and nothing separates us from this love. So we've just spent a little bit of time reflecting on Christ the King Sunday, and I'd like to just circle back and revisit the placement of this particular Sunday in the Christian calendar. 
as a sort of New Year's Eve before we begin the Christian calendar again next Sunday. On New Year's Eve, we tend to look back reflectively on the year that has just finished. And while you're watching the ball drop, or if you're in Boise, you watch the potato drop, we think about what's to come in the new year. Sometimes we're grateful that the new year is over, that the year is just over if it's brought hardship or grief. And sometimes there's a longing for days gone by, a longing for people we were with or events that brought us joy. And sometimes in looking back, it's just the comfort of knowing, neither positive nor negative, but a comfort in knowing what to expect, but then feeling fearful of the unknown ahead. I've been part of a small group called Rainbow Connection the past six years as someone who is seeking to be a better ally. And I've been blessed as a fellow sojourner and traveler with some of the most faithful people I've ever known. This past fall, we began to study a book called Torah Queries. This book in discussion has opened up a new way for me to think about Old Testament scripture. I've been deeply impacted by the commentaries and chapters in this book as it has called me into deeper understanding, not only of the scripture written so many years ago, but to read them in perhaps a way that Jesus did as he learned, as he discussed, and interpreted these scriptures to help his followers understand God. The Jewish practice of Midrash is a way to faithfully look at scripture, turn it for a new meaning, turn it again, and also with with spiritual imagination, seek to fill in the gaps where scripture might not complete a story or provide information. Rabbis through the centuries have shared interpretations of interpretations of interpretations, and in this way, the word, the scriptures, continue to be living. Over time, some scriptures have been interpreted and have hurt communities of people. And rabbis will continue to turn the story to seek new understanding that reflect a God whose movement is towards love. And Jesus knew this practice. And we can see examples of Midrash in the Gospels. One example shared by a member of our Rainbow Connection is when Jesus says, you've heard it said an eye for an eye, but I tell you, turn the other cheek. Jesus was constantly engaging scripture and the Torah to give new meaning for his followers that revealed a God of love and forgiveness. And the other awareness I've had is the way the original text was written on scrolls in Hebrew. There were no vowels and no punctuation. And while that's always been a curiosity to me, it really hit me this past week as Rabbi Dan Fink joined us at Rainbow Connection and spoke to a question that one of the members asked about the absoluteness of the Old Testament text and of how some may seek to read scriptures at face value. And he said, and I quote, it's nonsensical to us to think that Torah means one particular thing. He went on to say that statements could be questions. There are no capitals, there are no vowels. You could start a sentence here, you could start a sentence there. And there are just a million interpretations. Vowels and punctuation were added around 600 AD by a group of Jewish scribes known as the Masoretes. And they did their best to be faithful to the oral tradition that was expressed in these early writings. 
as they added vowels and punctuation, providing the words that we have now translated into English. And so studying and discussing Torah queries with others has opened my mind and deepened my faith in ways I was not prepared for. And it especially has been wonderful to find new understandings in stories that I thought were dusty and old. As I end today, I wanted to give you one example. The story in Genesis of Lot's wife connected me with our theme of the end of the liturgical year, the New Year's Eve for Christian I've been talking about. The context of this story is nestled within a story about Abraham and God's promise to him. And so the author of this part of Genesis describes the scenario as the culture found in Sodom as the antithesis of God's command to welcome the stranger and to extend hospitality to all. We've read this passage before. It's the retelling of sexually violent, abusive behaviors on the part of some of the inhabitants of Sodom. And also prior to the scriptures that we're gonna read on the screen in a minute, there's this back and forth between Abraham and God as he negotiates with God that if there are a certain number of innocent people in Sodom, surely God won't destroy it. And Abraham works his way from 50 people. What about 50 people? If there are 50 innocent people, will you, kill, will you destroy Sodom? And God says, no, if there are 50 people, I won't destroy Sodom. And then Abraham goes, what about 45? And then God says, no, if there are 45 innocent people, I will not destroy it. And then Abraham says, what about 30? And then God says, no, if there are 30 people, I will do not destroy Sodom. And he says 20, and he finally works his way down to 10. Each time God is saying, no, if there are 10 innocent people, I will do not destroy Sodom. So this negotiation kind of goes back and forth. And so we pick up the story now, if, if Amanda will put on the screen, um, after this violence that was aimed towards the strangers that came, and um, this was sort of the tipping point for God. And Genesis reads, Then the men said to Lot, Have you anyone else here, sons-in-laws, sons, daughters, or anyone you have in the city? Bring them out of this place. For we are about to destroy this place because the outcry against his people has become great before the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-laws, who were there to marry his daughters, Up! Get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his son-in-laws to be, but he seemed to his son-in-laws to be jesting. When morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, "Get up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, or else you will be consumed in the punishment of the city." But he lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, and the Lord being merciful to him, and they brought him out and left him outside the city. When they had brought them outside, they said, flee for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere on the plain. Flee to the hills or else you will be consumed. And Lot said to them, oh, no, my lords, your servant has found favor with you and you have shown me great kindness in saving my life. But I cannot flee to the hills for fear, um, for fear the disaster will overtake me and I die. Look, that city is near enough to flee to. And is it a little one? Let me escape there. Is it not a little one and my life will be saved? He said to him, very well, I grant you this favor too and will not overthrow the city of which you have spoken. Hurry, escape there, for I can do nothing until you arrive there. Therefore the city was called Zoar and the sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah, sulfur and fire from the Lord out of the heaven and he overthrew those cities 
and all the plain and all the inhabitants of the city and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord and he looked down towards Sodom and Gomorrah and towards all the land of the plain and saw the smoke and land going up like the smoke of a furnace. That is one of the most violent passages in the Old Testament. Every time I read it, I, there's something um, different or new or shocking about that whole event. And so as I've read this story through the years, I've focused on Abraham or on Lot. They're highlighted as the main character and the remainder of the story follows their actions. But in the book, Torah Queries, the authors seek to enlarge the circle of voices and perspectives of characters that aren't usually highlighted, like Lot's wife. For most of my life, I've held the belief that life, Lot's wife turned around and turned into a pillar of salt because of her disobedience. She was told not to look back at the city of Sodom, and she did. And so God punished her. But there were other disobedient characters in the Old Testament. Why was Lot's wife punished for looking back? And why was she looking back? Did she want things to stay the same? Was that her sin? Was she wishing for the good old days or romanticizing about them and things that she knew and she didn't want to change? Was she even given the opportunity to negotiate with God as Abraham did just one more glance as she left the city that had friends and family? And Lot's wife is the only person turned into a pillar of salt. And tears are salty. Is this a reference to her grief and the loss of life she was witnessing? And you know, Abraham, as we just read, he looked back. He didn't turn into a pillar of salt. But perhaps he wasn't losing everything. That was Rabbi Dan's idea and something I had never thought of. But this kind of dialogue about a little-known character brought compassion and connection for me to Lot's wife and to a character I previously judged or wanted to distance myself from. The questions and possible answers are as numerous as each of us in this sanctuary and faith communities that have read these words over time, and so we can turn the words and turn them again to find meaning in their time and place and in our time and place. These stories can be used as a lens and a way to think about our own situations, our own lives right now. And so I end this message today with a specific ask. Can we hold the character of Lot's wife close to us today and find connection in this little-known, marginalized character and allow God to illuminate a message to each of us? The liturgical New Year's Eve aside, is there something in your life that you are looking back upon, perhaps with sadness and tears of grief or perhaps with longing or fear of what's to come next? Can you hold close the overarching story of God's movement towards love and trust in Christ's presence now and behind you and before you? Maybe we hear the Spirit calling us to look back to remember so that we might move forward in love and forgiveness 
Or maybe we hear the Spirit calling us to just be still for a moment and hear the calming words, do not grow weary. And may we come back to this place next Sunday as we begin the year again with the story of the universal Christ incarnate in the person of an infant born into the worst of times, yet revealing to the world the true nature of God. Please pray with me. Loving creator, as we rise, give us strength and confidence that you go before us and that in Christ we become your love. As we leave this place, grant us the grace to speak and act with love, reflecting who we truly are. May we go in faith with eternity in view, moving towards love with every step we take. May we go in peace, knowing your kingdom is near, and may your Holy Spirit guide us now and always. Amen.